All right, well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Psalm 73. It's page 485 on a Blue Pew Bible if you want to follow along with us there. But we are now down to our final two weeks in our summer sermon series in the Psalms, Psalm 73 this morning. And then next Sunday, uh, which is Labor Day weekend, uh, we will be having one outdoor service next Sunday at 11 o'clock on the front lawn. Um, if it rains, we will be in, inside, but we're planning on being outside next week, one service, 11 a.m., and there Pastor Joe will finish our series with the final psalm, Psalm 150. But Psalm 73 asks a simple yet troubling question. Why do the wicked prosper? If God is sovereign control, why do those apart from Him seem to flourish while those who are close to Him seem to suffer? This has been one of the most formative psalms in my own life. Beginning, um, I think, back in my college years, uh, my college years were interesting in that uh, the first season of college was a when I drifted from the Lord, the furthest I probably ever had been, to the final half of my college years, which I was drawn closer to the Lord, closer than I ever had been. And in the midst of those years, I came across Psalm 73, and I resonated so much with it. I feel like I see a little bit of my story in Asaph's story, uh, because you see, like no one really does, you don't really anticipate drifting from the Lord, you don't really plan on it. Um, I know I grew up here in a solid church. I was a pastor's kid, uh, never resented that. Uh, father who was, uh, I was blessed to say that the same man that was preaching in this very spot on Sunday morning was the same man tucking me in on Monday nights and the same man coaching my basketball teams on Saturday mornings, faithful to the gospel, did not have a legalistic home. That was not my story. Uh, but when I went to college, I, I quickly drifted from the Lord. And uh, of course, I did not say that at the time. Um, I figured out the game uh, that many of you maybe can resonate with, the, the game where you know we need to act around the people who also claim to be Christians, and then you can act around a different way and people who don't really care about Christianity, and I, I feel like I mastered that game. Um, outwardly, I claimed to be a Christian. Inwardly, my affections were not set on the Lord, and my life increasingly so became evidence of that. But after the fact, I kind of look back and try to process what happened, and while nothing's as simple and black and white, I, I do think there's a sense in which I can say I didn't have an intellectual crisis of belief that many might experience in college, you know, didn't have that philosophy professor that challenged all my beliefs, I didn't have any real kind of theologies that I was really trying to dig into that rocked me. Uh, I surely had questions, um, still do in some cases, but that wasn't it at the time that really felt like drifted, and that's many people's story. I didn't have a crisis of circumstance. I didn't go through a real certain trial that, uh, in time of suffering that made me kind of start to question the goodness of God that, again, I know many people have experienced. I wasn't bitter against Christian culture. I wasn't angry at Christians or the church or the fundamental legalism that many people often experience while growing up. Um, and, again, there are, unfortunately, legitimate reasons why people feel that way based on their upbringing, but that was not my story. So, so what was it? Um, 
I think a large part of it was when I kind of turned 18 and I'm now living outside the home and I'm immersed in a new reality than ever before. Um, one thing I began to observe is that um, those around me who were without God seemed perfectly fine. They were perfectly fine being far from Him. And again, I grew up going to public school. I played sports all growing up, so I don't feel like I lived in a so-called bubble, but also I lived in a time where there was no social media. And so my exposure to the world was limited just growing up, the things I was interested in and exposed to. And then when that changed, I, you know, I, I think this narrative got challenged in my mind that those without God are just so lost and they're so desperate and they're so miserable. And everybody who's without God is just in such need of God and, and they know it. And what happened was I got to college and I realized they're without God and they don't really care. Turns out that wasn't the case. They were just fine. In many cases, they, they were thriving, it seemed. And, and nice people. Generous people. A lot of times more generous than me. And I found a lot of common ground with them, except the fact that they had no love for God, and that was a little disorienting for me. And on top of that, they had no issue with indulging in sin with, with no guilt at all. And I'm trying to indulge in the same sin, but I got all this guilt heaped on it. And, and rather than just kind of um, me showing them something of something they were missing out on, namely a relationship with Jesus Christ, my first years turned, turned to be the opposite. They were showing me something that I felt like I was missing out on, and I didn't want to miss out. It looked like a lot of fun because, again, they were doing just fine. And so it began, I think, a slow, deliberate process of starting to justify behaviors and mindsets that God opposed uh, because I saw it everywhere and no one seemed worse for the wear. And I realized that I, I can start to claim my belief in God, but I can have all these things in the world too. Again, I think I mastered the game. And it led to a crisis that I would not see for a couple of years and so it's a little bit of a different flavor on Psalm 73, but I think it's kind of same ballpark, different section, where you have this reality that if there's a sovereign God who's in complete control, why do those apart from him seem to flourish? Those who have no affection for him seem perfectly fine. It's a question that will mess with your mind. It's a question that everyone will crash up against at some point. Maybe some of you are crashing up against it right now. Not only in your own life, but you see what's happening in Afghanistan and other places, and you're like, why is it this way? So, Grace Church, do you want to be wise? And I think we need to understand Psalm 73. James Boyce was the longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1968 to 2000. His commentary on the Psalms is just so insightful and edifying, even just for a common believer, let alone somebody who's preparing sermons on it. And he wrote about Psalm 73 that the outline of Psalm 73 is like hiking into a canyon. So I'm thinking about the Grand Canyon. Um, just curious, has anyone hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, to that bottom river down there? I think we're going over. Ofer. All right, that's all of our bucket list. But he said that the hike of a canyon is obviously different from the hiking down a mountain because you're going down and you start and finish at the top instead of the bottom. So my little um, inability to do a drawing of this graphic that I had AJ put onto a slide, uh, this is our sermon of Psalm 73, and I think the visual actually does help. That we're going to start at the starting point, and then we're going to see his descent, and then his turning point, and then followed by the ascent, and he's going to finish where he started. And so Psalm, Psalm 73 of this honest doubt of this man. So let's turn our Bibles, Psalm 73. Let's start at the starting point, verse 1. 
Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's the starting point. It's the edge of the canyon. The author of Psalm 73, as you see in your Bible, just under the title, is a man named Asaph. And in modern terms, Asaph was King David's worship leader. He was in charge during King David's reign of the music at the tent of meeting. Remember, when, king, when David was king, the temple in Jerusalem was not yet built. That would not get built until the leadership of his son Solomon. So the place of gathering, of worship, of sacrifice, and then the place of where the Holy of Holies was, where God's presence dwelled, was in what was called the tent of meeting. And Asaph, we're told in Second Chronicles, would lead Israel in the singing of these psalms, that many of which David wrote. And then he himself began to compose some of those songs. And Psalm 73 is the first of 11 straight in the Psalter written by Asaph. And he begins at the starting point. His feet are at the edge of the canyon, affirming that God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. It's a statement of God's character, that God is good, right? We're seeing that word good again. If you were here, I think, two weeks ago now in Psalm 92, when it said it is good to give thanks to the Lord, that when we see good in the Bible, we got to think Bible good and not world good, because we use good in the world, not like they use good in the Bible. Bible good is far greater than world good. And so Asaph is starting here, knowing what's coming, but he's starting and intentionally starting here, that we serve a good God that is good to his people, meaning to those who are pure in heart. It's an interesting turn of phrase that might sound familiar to you, especially if you were here back in January when we began the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in the opening Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the starting point, that God is good in the fullest, purest sense of the word. But now we begin the descent into the valley. valley. Follow along as I read now verses 2 to 4. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every day morning. After the starting point, we begin the descent. Immediately, Asaph, while starting at that point, admitting or affirming that God is good to those who are pure in heart, 
he now admits that that is not how he would describe himself. But as for me, God is good to the pure, but as for me, and this is the beginning of a spiritual hike down to the depths of his own struggle. My, my feet had almost stumbled. And so um, let, let me kind of carry this Grand Canyon illustration a little further. Um, I'm sure many of you have at least been there if you had not hiked all the way to the bottom. Uh, you have this moment when standing at the Grand Canyon where you're standing like at the very edge and you kind of realize, okay, one more step and it's over. If I were to slip right here, if I don't see someone come behind me, just give me just even just the slightest little nudge, like game over, the lights are out. It's a, it's a feeling of, kind of your own mortality, just the, the power of God's creation. I'm just standing at this place, and then you have the question, like, why are they letting me stand here? They shouldn't let anybody stand here. And surely there are cases and stories of people who do slip. And so that's the picture that Asaph is, is giving us, a physical word picture to describe his spiritual state. He goes, I was at the edge. My feet had almost stumbled. I nearly toppled over and fully gave in to my doubt. And then he describes where was that doubt rooted? What caused it? If you look in your Bible in verse 3, it starts with the word for. Anytime you see that three-letter word for, like pay attention. It's called the ground clause. What's going to come after it? It's going to tell you the reason why he's saying what he's saying. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph tells it like it is as he sees it. He describes what his eyes are telling him, that those who want nothing of God seem to be the very ones who are thriving and being blessed most by God. And it bothers him. Honest doubt. This is not kind of a fleeting, flippant doubt. This is honest doubt rooted in verse 1 of what he knows, that God is good. But then he's describing what his eyes are seeing him. And he's questioning. He's going, why are they flourishing? In a world where God reigns, why do they seem to have it all? Charles Spurgeon, as he often does, puts it most concisely and accurately when he says, quote, Asaph saw their present and forgot their future. His doubt was rooted in seeing their present and forgetting their future. And then verses 4 through 15, we don't have time to kind of dig deep into every kind of aspect of his descent deep down into the valley. But there's a couple things we can kind of point out. He says that they, they, they feel no pain. There's no suffering in them until they reach death and they just get spared all the pain on the way. He says they are fat and sleek. Apparently, that's a good thing, right? Ancient culture, fat definitely didn't have the connotation that we have it today because um, your, your weight was associated often with your wealth. The overweight were the upper class because, one, they could afford the food, and two, they didn't have to do the labor like the working class. So your weight showed you to be in a place of distinction. Quick side note, uh, my sister-in-law, uh, Marlena, uh, who we also call Lena, uh, she grew up in American Samoa. That is an island way out in the Pacific. And American Samoa, fun fact, is the second most overweight country in the world. And it's partly because of their culture that being overweight is to be well thought of. And so Marlena grew up in her formative years being made fun of because she was too skinny. She couldn't put on the weight. 
And so she spent her, those years, middle school, high school, constantly trying to gain weight. And then she came to the continental U.S. for college and was like, wait a minute. Like, it's, it's different here. Like, everyone doesn't just want to be heavy. And, and so it was a complete paradigm shift for her that there was a sense that weight was, came with distinction. So I don't know what you're supposed to do with that information. Go tell your friends, all right? I don't know. But back to uh, the sermon. Um, uh, he, he continues to explain um, they are not stricken like the rest of us. They're prideful. They're untouchable, and they speak like it. Isn't that true? Like, when you feel like no one can touch you, you just say what you want to anyone. You see that often in kids, right? If they feel like that their parents have some kind of distinction in their place, they can just say whatever they want. They set their mouths against heaven. They're defiantly prosperous. They are the men who threaten the gods. And they leverage that power to oppress others. That's the dynamics of power. You will either use whatever power you have to oppress others or to serve others. And those far from God are going to use their power to oppress. And they get away with it. So it seems. And the bottom line is, Asaph is struggling with doubt due to his envy of others. And I think it's important we see the connection that in our own lives between envy and doubt. When our eyes are fixed on others in this world, when our eyes are rooted just in the present moment, and we make sweeping judgments about current events, sweeping judgments about other people based on what they have at that mo- and at a certain moment of time, and we see that, hey, the wicked seem to be prospering here, that leads him to not only envy them, but to doubt the God who gave it to them, and wish that he himself had it as good. And so there's some heart work, some examination work that I think we need to consistently be doing to understand how serious a role envy plays in our day-to-day lives. There's two reasons why you might, not, why you might be jealous of somebody else. Number one, they have or, or are experienced something that you don't. So we're in the midst of a very materialistic, consumeristic culture. It's the air we breathe in the metropolitan area where we often don't even realize it where people are defined by their stuff, and so we define ourselves by our stuff. We define ourselves by the home that we want or live in, by the space in the backyard that we would like, by the life circumstances related to kind of work and home that we desire. We define people by the strength of marriage they seem to have. We get jealous about the kids that we do or do not have, like them, by friendships, There's also experiences that people seem to be able to indulge in things that we can't for whatever reason. They can drink and party without having any guilt at all. They just wake up the next day, have a little bit of a hangover, and they seem fine. They can have sex with whoever they want and whenever they want, and they seem to be thriving on it, and I don't get to do that. They make a ton of money, and we feel like that we have the same gifting as them, but we don't make the money that they make. And so what happens is we either suffer without that or, like I did in college often, would justify to ourselves why it's okay to do certain things that I know what not supposed to do because I see them doing it and everything seems to be fine. It's one reason why you might be jealous. The other reason is that you are experiencing something that they are not. That perhaps you're dealing with illness or chronic pain as a follower of Jesus and yet 
you can point to many godless people who just seem perfectly fit and happy, have flawless bodies, and they don't care a lick about the Lord. I remember a pastor one time who had got diagnosed with brain cancer uh, at Thanksgiving, and, and then, you know, had the surgery and was home and was recovering, and the doctor at that point kind of gave him months to live. And then what happens after Thanksgiving? You start getting Christmas cards in the mail. You start seeing pictures of all these families. And he was sitting with his struggle and his pain, and he saw the picture of this family that just looked so happy, and yet he's the pastor of the church that knows this man cheated on his wife that year. And he's sitting there going, why, why doesn't he have brain cancer? Why, why, why I'm, I'm, I'm pastoring, I'm, I'm pouring myself out, I'm, I'm trying to counsel this couple, here they are, they look great in all their flannel pictures, they look beautiful, and why am I the one with cancer? Perhaps there's mental illness that forms and shapes so much of our lives, and we, we, we can't sleep, I can't remember the last time you got a good night's sleep, and then those are without God are sleeping great. We're having trouble with kids, with school, with money, with church, and, and yet they seem to have no conflict. And the moment when we fix our eyes and our minds on this and we can't get away from it, we lead, it leads us to the descent of verse 12 that led to Asaph. Look again, verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And Asaph, I'm sure, in the moments of silence in his own heart, is asking, how is God for me in all of this? God, I know you're good. Again, verse 1, he knows he's good, but he's wrestling with this because there's nothing that I'm feeling right now, nothing I'm seeing right now that seems to back that up. So what do we do in those moments? Luckily, this psalm is not over. Let's keep going. Verses 15 to 17. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But... When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. We've reached the bottom of the canyon. We've reached the turning point. This is why Psalm 73 is called the Psalm of Wisdom because verses 16 and 17 is what kept him from stumbling completely over the cliff what kept him from never climbing out of the descent. And we're given a glimpse under the hood of his mindset that he recognizes that his feelings about God is not lining up with what he knows to be true about God. Can you resonate with that? The moments when your feelings towards God does not seem to line up with what you know is true about God from his word. And he's trying to put this puzzle together, trying to understand, and he admits he's worn out by it. It's a wearisome task. This is real life. This is not just a mental exercise like it might be for us this morning as we consider. Maybe this is more of a mental exercise for you, but there will be a point where this will be real life. Asaph is in it, man. Like he's in the valley and he is confused and he's exhausted and he's at the end of his rope. And then you come to the phrase, until I went into the sanctuary of God if you're someone who allows yourself to underline and write in your Bible. Verse 17 of Psalm 73 would be good to engrave upon your mind. When you think about what he means by the sanctuary of God, there's a question. Is he talking about in his mind 
or is he talking about in person, like the actual tent of meeting? I think, honestly, it can be both. Because the sanctuary of God means the place where God's presence dwells. And so I think they both can be true. That Asaph, in the battle of his mind, has this mental entrance into the sanctuary of God. Meaning, dwelling upon the things of God. Sitting in his presence. And in that moment, God granting him the gift to give him a perspective of eternity. I think it can also be true of Asaph as the worship leader in the tent of meeting, thinking about entering into that tent, the physical entrance where God's people gathered. It probably did not look like you entering into this sanctuary this morning, although I think there are some parallels. But the tent where God's glory dwelled, he knew it's where God's law would be read and explained. That dwelling upon God's law, God's word being read and explained is something that's going to give him a perspective of eternity in the midst of his battle. Also, where it's different, that's where it's similar to us, I think where it's different from us is the tent of meeting is where sacrifices were offered. And there was an altar burning in the tent of meeting 24-7, meaning you would never not walk in and see and hear and smell flesh burning. I don't think that's an incense we want to start floating into this room. But it would give us some kind of visual, wouldn't it? Our senses would understand the eternal grace and the forgiveness of God. The reminder that the shedding of blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. And that whoever does not receive this forgiveness, their end is their destruction, eternity apart from him. I think this is another reason to put on the list as to why we began partaking in the Lord's Supper every day. Because you're not going to walk in and see a sacrifice burning on an altar up here, but you are going to behold the elements together. Dwelling upon the shedding of blood for you. And in this moment of worshiping God, making much of Him, dwelling upon Him, experiencing this reality of grace that covers sin for those who believe, Asaph went from the visible to the invisible, to the reality of the present as he sees it, to the reality of the future as he knows it by faith. And in this way, the worship of God proves to be the only antidote to his foolish thinking, to his envy. Worship for the people of God privately, in smaller communities, and in a corporate gathering are the moments God uses to allow you to enter into the sanctuary of God and receive the perspective that we need to live the kind of lives we're called to live. Worship is the only antidote to the foolish envy of Psalm 73. Now let's keep going and we see the ascent. After the turning point, bottom of the valley, he starts his way back up. Verse 17. Nope, sorry, verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, 
I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Bottom of the Grand Canyon, he's starting his hike back up to the rim. He's mindful of two things in his ascent. The dread of those who are heading towards destruction and the desperate need and gratitude for grace in his own life. His dread upon remembering where the wicked are headed. I think think there's a wrong way to view Psalm 73 in that once he realized the future of the wicked when he entered the sanctuary of God, that he started celebrating that. That as if he was happy that they're going to be destroyed. How how I envy their present demeanor, but they're, they're going to get what's coming to them. I don't think that's the tone of Asaph. I think rather he is horrified at what will happen to them unless the grace of God sets upon them like it set upon him. Surely they are on slippery ground. And they're going to wake up like a dream. And they'll be too late. And they'll be swept away. I think he is grieving over the reality of sin and the brokenness it brings and the place where it leads. Right? This is one of the more powerful aspects of poetry and poetic literature. It's why the Psalms are in the Bible and we sing them and why this summer we're preaching them. Because it gives you vivid word pictures to convey eternal truth. Again, Psalm 92, we saw David say that the lost are like a blade of grass. Do you remember that? Like they spring up and then they're gone before you know it. And here he says, it's like a dream. One of those dreams that you are really convinced it's true. You've had that dream where, where like, like this feels so real in the moment. Like this, this must really be happening. But it's not really happening. The true reality is that they're fools. Only fools would brag about and define themselves based on their dream life compared to their real life. You ever heard somebody just boast about their dreams when their life's in shatters? Pieces? And he says once they realize it, it's going to be too late. So he's dreading the reality of the lost. And then second, he is mindful of just how dependent he is at every waking moment on the grace of God to sustain him. Do you see the confession in there? Right? Because, because he was honestly doubting the goodness of God, and now he is honestly confessing his sin to not trust in the God who saved him. Prone to wander, Lord, I, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And he says in verse 22, he was like a beast when his soul was embittered. Think about this. If, if it's fools who do not love God, How foolish is it then to be jealous of a fool? Jealous of one whose end is destruction. And so after he entered the sanctuary of God, he sees this and he's grieving his own sin and yet he's being reminded at that very moment when he says, nevertheless, you hold my right hand. Nevertheless, despite our foolish tendencies, nevertheless, despite the fact that we are battling with our own honest doubt, 
our faith is not contingent on our strength, it's contingent on His. And it all comes back to grace. Every waking moment, throwing ourselves not on the hope of riches in this world, but on the riches of grace in eternity that is offered to us by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So that we can say, seriously, my heart and my flesh may fail. Might fail tonight, might fail next week, might fail in 50 years, but one day it will fail. But God is the strength of my heart. The only person in the universe that can say that line is the man or woman who is saved by grace, by the strength of another. And Asaph's new awareness that it's all grace is the ability to defend against the draw of worldly prosperity that we see, that we tend to envy, this awareness of grace that leads to worship, again, is the only aspect where we can renew our minds again. Psalm 73 is about the battleground of the mind, the battleground of the mind that is waging war every single day in your life will shape the feelings, emotions, words, and actions of your lives. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, there's that word, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, let's get back to the finishing point and wrap up. We finish as we began, verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It's the finishing point. Psalm 73 is a psalm of wisdom. The key to joy, the key to a faithful, God-glorifying life is not having good things happen to you. It's rooting yourself in the finished work of Christ by winning the battleground of your mind. This is the paradigm shift. This is the shift of lenses through which you see the world when you're a believer. Do you judge everything you see, everything you read through God's eyes as revealed in His Word? Or do you judge everything in God's word through the world's eyes? It's the daily battleground of the mind. If you judge what's in God's word through the world's eyes, it will lead you to a place of envy. But if you judge everything in the world through God's eyes, it will lead you to a place of wisdom. Church, keep a tab in your Bible on Psalm 73. Revisit it regularly. Join Asaph on that hike. Keep that picture in your mind through the canyon and get yourself to the finishing point where we see it is good to be near God. Let's pray. Father, we are every single week grateful to be able to open up this word, read it, understand it and apply it together. And Father, I pray that we would be walking out of this gathering 
with the final line of this psalm engraved on our minds that we would go and tell of all your works, Lord, that this is the good news we're not to keep to ourselves. This is the good news we are to live and the good news we are to proclaim. Father, give us the courage to open our mouths, to tell people of who you are, to urge people to follow you, to be honest and uh, confess the times that we fall short of that and let it attest to your grace all the more. Father, in our times of honest doubt, lead us to honest confession and then to an honest, firm trust in you and let it be for your glory and your glory alone. And it's your name that we pray. Amen. We invite you to stand so we respond in song and prepare to take the Lord's Supper together.